Amen. Good to see you guys this morning. I was tempted to say howdy, y'all. <laughs> I've enjoyed this little um, bluegrass flavor. And uh, by the way, before he steps off the stage, guys, Rob Howard on the banjo, the author of our book. Hey, he, you, you come here. You love this. I know you love this. Well, Will you, will you sign autographs at the end on the book, people's book? <laughs> I do hope you got one of these books on your way. And if you were not here last week, you missed it. Uh, one copy per family. And Rob is one of our executive pastors at Fellowship. And he's one of those guys, honestly, he doesn't love for people to call attention to him. So he's probably angry at me right now. But I got a kick out of doing that. Um, so Rob is not only a great manager here at Fellowship, but he is, as you can see, an author. And in particular, he's really gifted at helping people walk with God. He's gifted at helping people learn how to open up lines of communication between themselves and God. So what this book actually is, is designed as a workbook to help people talk to God. And he uses 31 psalms. So each chapter is a different psalm that, that Rob talks about in you know, four, five, six paragraphs, pretty brief uh, explanation of the psalm. And then there's a spiritual exercise for each psalm. In this series, which we really are, are named after the title of the book, Morning, Noon, and Night, we're grabbing six of these 31 psalms that Rob covered in this book. And each time uh, Lloyd or myself or one of the other teachers is gonna unpack and exposit that Psalm and then point you to the spiritual exercise in the book for you to do, to really kind of help open up those lines of communication between you and God. I want to say this, we're only covering six. There are 31 in the book. I want to encourage you to do the whole book on your own. Take it with you. Um, pass it around your family. Use your journal to do these exercises. It's really helpful, and I really mean that. The essence of Psalms is prayer. The essence of prayer is talking to God. And so the Psalms are designed to help us talk to God. They're here to help us communicate. I really like the illustration Lloyd used last week in his first week in the series when he described that scene from the alien movie Contact where Jodie Foster is listening with the headphones and you know all the antenna are pointed out to the, the universe, the sky, the space to see if they can hear anything. And she hears the sound of an extraterrestrial broadcast. And that grabbed onto me because I thought that's actually what I think the Psalms are doing. They're, they're helping us hear God and relate to him. So my mind went to another alien movie that I, in fact, the very first extraterrestrial movie that I can remember seeing growing up was not E.T. That came a little bit later. This was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Anybody remember this movie? 1970s. Honestly, the only thing I remember about this movie was John Williams' score. This was one of the early Spielberg, John Williams collaborations. And what was brilliant about this movie is the way that the communication between the Earth earthlings and the aliens is unlocked is through these five notes. And you hear these five notes all over, you know, dun, 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 Carl Cartsy, where are you? Did you hear my singing on that? There he is right there. I'm auditioning for you. Thank you. So you hear these five notes and you realize, okay, that musical motif is what's going to enable these, you know, alien beings, alien to each other, to start a relationship, to start communication. I was thinking about that and I thought, you know, the book of Psalms gives us several different motifs, musical motifs for how to communicate with God. One of the most important musical motifs in the book of Psalms is confession. 
So this morning we're going to talk about confession in Psalm 32. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 32. Now I'll go ahead and tell you up front, I'm not going to cover all 11 verses. I really only have time for five because there's so much here and I want to dig into them. I want to take our time as we walk through this because I've come to believe that biblical confession is one of the most misunderstood concepts. And I mean that both inside the church, outside of the church. When you think of confession, when I think of confession, the, the first things that usually come to our mind is being called into the principal's office. You know, or that talk that your parents used to have with you when you got caught doing something wrong. Who wants to confess? I mean, who wants to go into a situation where you got to admit, yeah, it was wrong. This is what I did. I'll take my punishment, et cetera, et cetera. Biblical confession is completely different than that. And so my objective as I am teaching this morning is it's pretty simple, but it's pretty ambitious. I hope to change the way you think about confession, at least a little bit. I want you to think about confession maybe in a way you've never thought about it before. And then I will encourage you to practice it because I honestly believe it will change your relationship with God. Now, let's dive in. Uh, we're gonna start here in verse one. And here's what I'll say about Psalm 32 as a whole. There's probably no better Psalm of the 150 to teach us about confession. It's a Psalm of David. Many think it's related to Psalm 51, which may be the most famous confession in the Bible. Psalm 51 is when David confessed his sin before God, his great sin of uh, adultery with Bathsheba, and then when he murdered her husband Uriah to try to cover up his sin. Many people think Psalm 32 was written later as he was reflecting on the whole experience of what it was like before he confessed and then what his confession was like. That may be true. We don't know for sure, but I will say this Psalm Psalm certainly transcends just that context. And it's helpful for all of us, teaching us the life-giving value of confessing sin. So let's look at the first two verses together to begin with. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The first thing we got to zero in on is this very important key word, blessed. You hear that word all throughout the Bible. Most people think, oh, that's just a religious term. It kind of means like holy, or it means, you know, God is shining his favor on you. Uh, to the original hearers, it would have been something, whoops, I lost it. Here we go. Bring it back. To the original hearers, it would have been something much more simple to their ears. It meant happy. Maybe another way you could say it is, is well off, or, or this, is, this is the one who is flourishing, I like that word because there is actually a whole genre in the Bible that talks about what it takes to be flourishing, what it takes to, to be happy, what it takes to be blessed. It's the wisdom literature of the Bible. And in, in fact, David is contributing here to the wisdom literature. He does that in, in several places in the Bible. Uh, but in this one in particular, David is saying the, the well-off person, the happy one, the person who's really flourishing is the one whose transgression is forgiven, the one whose sin is covered. The flourishing human being, the well-off happy, is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David uses three words to talk about sin. And we, we have to understand sin if you're gonna think differently about confession. Confession. 
Because if you're thinking wrongly about sin, you're going to think wrongly about confession. So let me unpack each of these words briefly. The first word we see is transgression. You might understand transgression to mean rebellion. All sin is ultimately rebellion against God. Even small sins is, is just a way that we're, we're pushing up against the idea of, of an authority over us or, or a universal standard that we have to adhere to. We were pushing up against that. It's, it's rebellion against God, ultimately. That's what, what sin is at its core. The next word David uses is the word sin, which is the most common and, and general term in the Old Testament for sin. And, and it, it means falling short. So, you know, imagine um, David, when he was learning to throw that sling that, that ultimately he used to kill Goliath, there were plenty of times, I'm sure, in his practice that he missed the mark, that, that, that he didn't hit the target. That's, that's what this word sin means. It means falling short or, or missing something, failing to hit the target. And the third word that David uses here is iniquity. Oops, I didn't mean to. I like consistency. Let's underline, not circle. Okay, iniquity is a little harder to define, but it carries the idea with it of something being distorted or maybe twisted. So there, there is a standard of, of life, of God's expectations that, that's been distorted, that's been clouded, that's been twisted around. Now, what strikes me about all three of these words for sin is that they all assume a universal standard. Our society no longer assumes a universal standard. I think this is why the culture around us, both in our country and around the world, has lost the concept of sin. Sin makes no sense in a society that doesn't value a universal standard of how to live life. Who are you to say that the way that I'm living my life is any worse or better than the way that you are living your life? The vast majority of people you and I rub shoulders with, uh, the idea of a universal standard from God or from anywhere else is long gone. Now, the concept of a standard of life, I believe is one of the greatest gifts we get in God's revelation of, in, in, in scripture. Now, here's what I wanted to say about that. What is the standard that God gives? Well, the first thought that comes to your mind is the law. Like God's law is the standard. Actually, it's higher than that. God's law is not designed to give the standard. God's law is designed to alert us that we fall short of the standard. The standard is God himself. The fullness, the completion of God the holiness. So holiness means is, is he's whole, he's, he's complete, he's other, he's separate, he's set apart from us. This is why in Romans 3.23, Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He doesn't write all have sinned and fall short of the law of God, although that's also true. He's calling us to something even higher. He's like, the standard is God himself. So transgression, think about it this way, is rebellion against the standard, which is rebellion against God himself. Sin is falling short of the standard, which is to say, I'm not God. I can't be God. I'm not whole and complete like God is. That's sin. And then iniquity is taking that standard, God himself, and, and distorting it. So think about it this way. 
we were made to represent God's image on the earth. We have twisted the image of God. We have distorted the image of God. That is our iniquity. Now, when you think about sin that way, you think, well, if God himself is the standard, how can I possibly attain it? And you're starting to think rightly about sin. You've heard it said, sin is what separates you from God. But have you ever thought about that this way? Sin is what makes you alien compared to God. And so, David is saying in this psalm, we're only in verse two yet, blessed is the one, happy, well-off, and flourishing is the one who is no longer alien from God, who is no longer separated from God, whose sin is no longer held against him. Now, the theme of Psalm 32 is that true happiness is found in closeness with God. True happiness is found when the gap between you and God, which is called sin, is closed so that you can be in communion with your maker. That's the flourishing life, according to David. When is close communion with God experienced? When your transgression is forgiven when your sin is covered and when the Lord does not count against you your iniquity. And there's one more benefit. I love this last phrase. In whose spirit there is no deceit. That's a big clue as to why the forgiven person is so happy, is so well off, is so flourishing, is there's no deceit, there's no hiding, there's no posturing, maneuvering. He or she is open and known. David goes on from these first two verses to describe his own personal experience with unconfessed sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. When he says, when I kept silent, he is talking about the time before he confessed. So when I kept silent equals before I confessed my sin. For David, there was a very clear before and after. Now, he goes on to describe how it feels to him to be separated from God. And some commentators have said, I wonder what disease David had, you know, what, was, what would cause him to, to feel like his bones were, was there some bone disease he had? I, I don't think you have to go there. I think David is doing what he often does. He's using figurative language to describe how it felt for him to exist relationally disconnected with God because of the barrier of his unconfessed sin. 
Now, if you know anything about David, you know that, that David's relationship with God, his connection to God was life to him. In one of his other Psalms, he wrote, as the deer pants for water, my soul pants after you. It's like to David, connection to God was his life source. What was it that could take away David's experience of closeness with his maker? Unconfessed sin. Anytime David wasn't being open and honest with God, or to use his word from verse two, when he had deceit in his soul. Deceit always creates relational distance. By definition, deceit is, is hiding. It, it, it's, it's withholding, it, it's covering. It always creates relational distance. Think about any relationship that really matters to you in your life. You know, husband or wife, a child, a parent, a, a best friend, a, a sibling, you know, something about any relationship that really matters in your life. Have you ever hidden something from that person? Yes, you have. Yes, you have. Do you know how that feels? Like the relationship on earth that's most important to you when there is something that you are holding back, when there is something that you are hiding, it robs the relationship of intimacy and you feel it. Bless you. It saps something from you. It, it requires so much energy to hide. It requires so much effort. And you can identify with David. He's like, oh, it's just like in the summertime, the sun is just beating down on me. God's hand is heavy on me. By the way, that's the hand of grace that is heavy on David to bring him back into fellowship, to bring him back into communion. When you're hiding something from another person, true intimacy becomes impossible. It's exhausting, it saps your strength, your energy is going toward the deception, the posturing, the maneuvering. It turns out hiding is a lot of work. It always robs you more than it pays you. Most importantly, it robs you of the joy of relational connection. I remember learning this lesson when I was in elementary school I've literally not told this story to anybody. My mom didn't even know this story. She watched the first service online and she texted me. <laughs> She's like, I didn't know that story. I was in elementary school and I, this is maybe second, third grade. I don't remember exactly what grade it was, but, but my friend Austin and I were bored at recess one day. So we decided to make up a game and we made up a game and then we recruited all the other boys in our class to play this game with us. The game was very simple. Whoever had the ball tried to keep all the other boys from taking the ball from him. Now, what made this game fun was there were no rules. <laughs> no rules meant anything goes, like no holds barred. So we ignored all the playground rules. So we kind of had to do this, you know, and like there was this little kind of a little bit of a ridge. The teacher couldn't see us as well. We were up on this field. So, you know, we had to look out and all these kinds of things. And so as you can imagine, like chaos ensued. Now, Austin and I knew that as soon as we were caught playing this game, we'd be in trouble. So Austin and I, the inventors of the game, volunteered to be the referees, standing on the sideline, watching all the other boys play the game. We even gave the game the perfect name. We called it Watch or Be Busted. <laughs> Our thinking was, 
if the boys got in trouble that we're playing this game, we'd say, it's not as if we didn't warn you. We named the game, watch or be busted. <laughs> and so the, the, the game went exactly as we anticipated. It was the best recess the boys in my class had ever had. Right up until the point that the teacher stormed onto the field <laughs> and broke up all the fun and everybody got in trouble except me and Austin. <laughs> and there was one boy, I still feel bad about this today. There's one boy who had a reputation for being the one that would always get in trouble. And he said to the teacher, he said, it was Robbie and Austin's idea. And the teacher did not believe him because we were the good kids. <laughs> oh, I am confessing my sin. It feels so good. <laughs> the next day, they got their punishment. The punishment was when we all went out for recess, all the boys involved, which literally was everyone in my class except for two, me, me and my friend, they had to line up against the brick wall and stare at the rest of the kids who were enjoying recess. Me and Austin were the only boys who were free. <laughs> except we weren't free. That was the worst recess of my life. I could feel the stares of those other boys on the wall like daggers piercing my heart. And I thought to myself, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, the hand of the Lord was against me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I wish I could say that I went to the teacher and confessed, but I did not. Maybe she's out there. Maybe she'll find this on a podcast somewhere and she'll know. I feel unburdened in the telling of the story. Now, in these verses, David gives us this vivid description of what it's like before he confessed. And we can all identify with it. We all know what that feels like to hide something, to be guilty and hold it back out of fear or, or concern for our own reputation or a fear of the punishment. We're afraid. We don't share. Unconfessed sin robs us of relational intimacy. And when we're talking about our creator, it's robbing us of intimacy with the being who matters most. But then in verse five, David's gonna talk about his experience with confession. Let's take a look at that verse together. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What a contrast, verses three and four, and you get to verse five, it's like, oh, thank you, thank you. I want to take a look at what confession actually is so we can see it with new eyes. David helps us understand it by using two parallel phrases. One thing he did, I acknowledge my sin to you. That's the first phrase. And then one thing he stopped doing, I did not cover my iniquity. That's the second phrase. Confession simply means talking to God about what he already knows. And in doing that, you come out of hiding. Here's the best part. 
when you come out of hiding, I will confess God always forgives. I will confess and you forgave. There is never a time that you will talk to God about your sin that you will not also receive forgiveness because that forgiveness is secured for you through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is God's great gift to relationally distant human beings. Confession is the doorway through which you walk to experience forgiveness. Have you ever experienced what it feels like to be completely yourself around another human being? It's like the person that knows all your secrets and loves you anyway. It is one of the best feelings in the world. It's what your soul craves for. It's true intimacy. How would you like to experience your relationship with God that way? That's the offer on the table. That's the invitation of confession. That's the opportunity it gives you. Now, notice how comprehensive this is. The, the same three words David used earlier to describe sin, he, he reuses here to describe his confession and the forgiveness. Sin, I acknowledge. I did not cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's just holistic. It's complete. It's full. Nothing is hidden from God. So when you confess, it allows him to forgive it all. So this begs the question, if nothing is hidden from God, why do we try to hide? <laughs> why is it that, that once we've, we've sinned, and of course, you know, in, in a sense, there, there's, we're, we're, we're sinning so frequently. There's, there's in thought and word and deed and things we do and things we don't do. But I'm talking about conscious things that we know. We know we did in conscious rebellion against God. Why do we try to hide it? Why are we afraid to talk to God about it? I think it goes all the way back to the beginning and, and all the way down to the most fundamental human fear, which is the fear that if we were ever really known, truly known, we would not be loved. The first time human beings sinned, they did two things immediately, instinctively. They covered their nakedness and they hid. Why did they do those things? God came to them. God found them. He sought them out. And he, he, he invited them in back into conversation. How did he do that? Through a question. The question God asked Adam and Eve in their hiding is, he said, who told you you were naked? In other words, why did you suddenly feel like you had to cover yourself from me? Adam and Eve covered themselves because they were ashamed. And they hid themselves because they were afraid. What were they afraid of? They were afraid that if God saw them in their shame, he would feel differently about them. That he would be disappointed. That he would be angry. That he might be disgusted. Disgusted. 
God was not. God did not turn away. In fact, he covered them. He said, those fig leaves cannot cover your shame. I'm going to sacrifice something for you to cover the shame of your sin. And he did. He clothed them. He provided for them what they needed. David knew firsthand sin makes you want to hide because it exposes your shame. David also knew I was grooving. I was grooving. Oh, it's you, Andrew Riley. <laughs> Do you want to go hide right now? <laughs> Andrea, the good news of the message is for you. David knew something else. He knew that the way to cover your shame is counterintuitive. You can't cover your shame by hiding. Your shame is covered by God when you come out from hiding. That's what confession is all about. The blessing of confession is it allows you to be truly known and truly loved. You won't experience that without it. Now God's covering for your sin is already earned for you in Jesus Christ. Confession then is the way you come to experience that forgiveness, the forgiveness that's already there waiting for you. When you think about confession this way, you realize, oh, it's the gateway to freedom. I want to confess. I want to talk to God right now. I, I, I want to talk to him about the worst parts of me. Can, it, can the gospel really be this good? The answer the scripture says is yes. Yes. So, so what is the spirit saying to us through Psalm 32 this morning? You know, this is the living word of God for us today. What's the spirit saying? He's saying, don't delay to confess. Don't hold back. Don't hide. Don't hesitate to talk to God about the worst parts of you because it will only draw you into communion with God. And that's your deepest happiness. That's where you will flourish. Confession is one of the most life-giving practices we have available to us. And because I believe that is true, I wanted all of you to have Rob's exercise from the chapter he wrote on Psalm 32. And, and so this card that's on your seat when you came in, go ahead and pull that out. Uh, it, it's essentially exactly what's printed on pages 60 to 61, which, which is the, the, the end of Rob's chapter that he writes on Psalm 32. And it's a spiritual exercise that will teach you, help you, to confess, to come out of hiding. And I know some of you are like, I don't know if this is for me. Like, you know, you don't know how much I've been hiding, how long I've been hiding. You don't know what I've done. You, you don't understand, Rob. Your, your little story, you, for third, second grade, whatever, that pales in a comparison of what I've done. You know, I'm not as far away from you as you would imagine. And neither is anyone else in this room. If confession could reach the depths 
of David's depraved, adulterous, murderous heart, it can reach yours as well. And so I want to encourage you to do this. We're not going to do it right now in the room. This is something that, that's personal. That's another reason. I, I wanted every person to have a copy of this. You know, we have one book per family, but I wanted every person to have this so that you can engage with God through this exercise. I think it's that important. I think it's going to be that life-giving to us as a body. Uh, you, you can write literally on this you know, later today you know, when you have opportunity to, or you can take your, your journal and use this as a reference and maybe keep it. It's a great resource to walk you through confession that you could potentially use over and over again, but I really want to encourage you. I, I want to admonish you. Don't delay. Don't wait. There's only forgiveness on the other side of confession. I want to now invite you to take out the elements of the Lord's Supper that you received when you came in. If you didn't get one, just go ahead and stand up. There's some people doing that right now. Go to the back. In fact, I, I, I need a favor. If someone could grab me one, I, I neglected to grab one on the end or I'd left it in my seat or something. If somebody could grab one for me. Uh, we do this every week here at Fellowship because we want to remember. What are we remembering? We're remembering that, thank you. The gospel is real. The gospel is true. For me, sometimes I need something I can touch, something I can feel, something I can see, in this case, even something I can taste to remind me that forgiveness is mine. The gospel is real. And for some of you, you know, you actually have never entered into a relationship with God because you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ. And, and I want to tell you this. You don't have to join this church or any church. You don't have to do some great work. All it is is starting a conversation with God that begins with your confession and puts your trust in the work of Jesus on your behalf. That puts you into relationship with God just like that. And I want to invite some of you, maybe for the first time, even as you're peeling back the wafer, just have a conversation with God. Say, God, I need you. I need your grace. I need your face, your eyes, your countenance looking on me. I'm afraid you won't love me if you see me. And today I'm daring to believe you do. So take the bread now in your hand. Let it remind you that forgiveness is yours through the broken body of Jesus Christ. And let's eat. Peel back the foil of the cup. You and I are thirsty people. Now, there's no way that this little, you know, half an ounce of liquid can quench our literal thirst. But you know what we're really thirsty for? To know we're seen and loved. And that's the core of the gospel message. And so what you hold in your hands represents the shed blood of Jesus who gave up his life for you to know your sins are forgiven. The chasm between you and God has been permanently closed. Let's drink with joy in our hearts. And Father, I thank you for the truth of the gospel, the realness of it, the, the tangibleness, that it's, it's not just something that, that we believe that someday will help us live with you forever. It's something we believe now that, that allows us in this moment to experience communion with you. So Father, I pray for us as a body. May we be quick to confess. May we come out from hiding. 
May we be unafraid to talk to you about the worst parts of us, knowing the chasm has already been closed. Communion awaits us. Thank you, Father, for the blessing of confession. In the name of Jesus.